Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, 3D double vision at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. My guest is Britt Salveson, who curated the show. It features exhibits from mass culture, photography, and fine art in which makers exploit the nature of perception and binocular vision, the way our brains turn what our two eyes see into a single image. The show is on view in Los Angeles through March 31st, 2019. Yes, really, March 31st, 2019. The outstanding exhibition catalog is both a really good read and a fascinating object, complete with two 3D glasses, in its own right. It was co-published by LACMA and Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for 38 bucks. It's a bargain. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, art historian Bridget Alsdorf will talk about women artists in Paris, 1850 to 1900. That shows at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. But first, Britt Salveson, after the break. Now through August 12th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Inherent Structure, a fascinating glimpse into the underlying sources and influence on abstract painting today, featuring 16 artists, including Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, Sam Gilliam, Arturo Herrera, Angel Otero, Laura Owens, and Ruth Root. Brought together by Michael Goodson, Senior Curator of Exhibitions at the Wex, the multi-generational group challenges historical associations with chance, gesture, and aesthetic purity, revealing the personal, material, and sociopolitical concerns at play in their practices through more than 60 captivating artworks. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Joris Larman Lab, Design in the Digital Age, an in-depth look at the innovative work of acclaimed Dutch designer Joris Larman. From furniture generated by algorithms to designs brought to life by robots, this exhibition showcases Larman's furniture, design experiments, drawings, videos, renderings, 3D printing innovations, and much more. On view through September 16th. Visit mfah.org slash Larman, L-A-A-R-M-A-N, for more. Actress Lola Kirk, star of the series Mozart in the Jungle in films Mistress America and Gone Girl, also leads an indie band. Hear her smoky vocals and beautifully plaintive songs on Saturday, July 28th at 6 p.m. as part of the Off the 405, an annual summer concert series that brings today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by John Acomfra, the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud coronet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Britt Salveson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Your exhibition and book, they're called 3D Double Vision, which is a sexy, marketing-friendly title. 
But the opening sentence of your catalog essay starts by defining your aims a teeny bit differently as an exploration of, quote, the quest for a perfect image, which I thought was a great start. So what is a perfect image? I guess theoretically, it's an image that replicates how we see the world. And that is a notion that, especially since the invention of photography, has been re-interrogated, explored, pushed in many different ways. So I would argue we have not yet achieved the perfect image. And I guess it's important to note right at the start that while American audiences think of three-dimensional things they might see in an art museum as primarily being stereograph photographs, which were particularly famous in the 19th century and beloved and snapped up in the 19th century, this show goes way beyond 19th century stereograph cards. In, in fact, kind of the driving thing of the show is is that the range of people who have an interest in perception is not limited to artists or photographers or photographers who are artists. So who else is interested in perception that ends up in your show and why? Kind of what, what peoples? Well, the show also uh, includes thinking by people in the realms of different kinds of sciences, mathematics, physical sciences, the 19th century categories of natural philosophy, and the kind of emergent fields like experimental psychology, which is a turn of the 20th century field, right up through what might be more familiar to us today, computer animation and um, structural engineering, those kinds of areas, all of whom, if you think about it, needed ways to visualize objects in space and objects in their volume. So with our scope understood, let's go back to the beginning. The stereoscope was invented in 1838, the year before photography was, was announced. What was the stereoscope invented for and how was it initially used? Yes, I think that near coincidence that you mentioned is so interesting, that 1838 for the stereoscope, 1839 for the announcement of photography. That first inventor of the stereoscope, Charles Wheatstone, was coming from the um, science side of things and was interested in optics, also interested in acoustics, in innovator and in early telegraphy. So one of those kinds of Victorian Renaissance men, if you will. And he was interested in a device that would demonstrate the workings of binocular vision, how our two eyes receive two different flat images and then resolve those, the visual system resolves those two images into a single volumetric 3D image. So the stereoscope takes apart those two, those two left and right eye images and resolves them using mirrors so that your brain is doing the work. There's not actually a 3D object out in the world in that case. There are two 2D pictures. Your brain makes them 3D. So this didn't necessarily depend on photography at all. Since there wasn't an object, there didn't need to be a photograph of it. Um, in, instead, he drew geometric diagrams. Is he interested in this in 1838 because of advances in anatomy or, or something of that nature? Or is he just thinking through new ideas? Um, there were advances in physiological optics that I think he was aware of. And that becomes even more of a driving force a little bit later in the, 20, in the 19th century. 
He was also from a kind of what we would call, I guess, a maker background. His father was a, a musical instrument maker. So he was the kind of guy and one of many of his generation who, when they wanted to prove something, would build a device that would show it. Hence his impulse to kind of externalize the duality of vision. He also, though, to get back to your original question, was aware of the experiments around photographic image making that were happen happening at the time. He knew John Herschel. He knew William Henry Fox Talbot. So, so even before the official 1839 announcement of photography, he knew it was in the making and had seen some demonstrations and so on. So he, although he chose to announce his invention with the geometric drawings. He also anticipated that sooner rather than later, photography would come into play with the stereoscope. One of the things I learned from your show that I hadn't known or even considered was that there was such a thing as illustration that was made stereoscopic and very early on. Why and how? A, a stereoscopic diagram can show a shape. If you think about a simple geometric shape like a sphere, let's say, with a stereoscopic diagram, it, it's linear and you can see through it. Whereas if you think about a plaster model of that same thing, the model is three-dimensional, but you can't see through it. It's opaque. So it served the purposes in mathematical thinking, for example, of being able to see it in its volume, but also its transparency. And there were some early accounts, 1850s, etc., where by mathematicians who would, and I can't summarize it too easily because I've never tried to do it myself, how to make the stereoscopic drawings in their proper relationship, techniques that account for the binocular disparity or the, the distance between your two eyes. But I think it's kind of a, there are methods that can be applied from the first drawing to create a second drawing in relation to it. And then those same methods are used, for instance, in an anaglyph comic book that has the red and the blue offset, you have a key drawing and then you make a second drawing in relation to it. It's not just a transposition side to side. There have to be other parallax relationships, but there are methods that can make it consistent. This was not a brief moment in the 1840s. There are in the exhibition and in the book stereographic drawings from the 1850s and from the 1930s. So these were popular enough to be made commercially in the 1930s. Uh, you know, it looks like they were popular enough to hold people's interest for 80 years. Yes. And and while we're on that subject of kind of, so to speak, the freehand um, stereoscopic pairs, Oscar Fischinger did that in in some paintings in the 1950s. And Salvador Dali did some stereoscopic paintings in the 1970s. And so this is, you know, well into, <laughs> deep into the photographic era when one would have been able to take stereo pairs with a camera and be done with it. The extra effort of rendering those in paint is uh, pretty remarkable, I think. We're going to come back to the paintings, especially the Fischinger later on. It's it's a really great thing. The Dolly you mentioned is in the catalog. I think it's not in the show. 
There is a dolly of a crucifixion scene that's at the Met that we'll have on manpodcast.com. It is an astonishingly bad, but also astonishingly relevant painting. Yes. Dolly's interest in multidimensionality is really quite fascinating. You can see traces of it in his earlier and famous surrealist work, and he gets more into it as the uh, 20th century unfolds. But that hypercube crucifixion image it is it is so fascinating and what i really enjoyed hearing from our uh, contributing catalog author thomas banchoff what a big impression it made on him as a young man and really spurred his intellectual development as a mathematician who is one of the world's leading thinkers about the fourth dimension both the history of its formulation and the sort of conceptual ways of rendering it and depicting it. That's been his career, basically. And seeing that Dali painting as, I think, a high schooler really set him on that course. So were there stereographs of illustrations before there were stereographs of photographs, or do we not know which came first? Well, in, in terms of published examples, by which I mean things that would have circulated in the public, the the drawings or the diagrams preceded the photographs, but they were being kind of experimented with concurrently. But you saw the diagrams were published in 1838, and then the general public wouldn't have seen stereo pairs in any serious way until the Crystal Palace exhibition in 1851. The London kind of proto-World's Fair, if you will. Yes, which in my mind is sort of the beginning of everything. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's go to that. Repeatedly in the catalog, and I should note that as usual, we're taping this before the show is even fully installed. In the catalog, the Crystal Palace exhibition, the first Crystal Palace exhibition, surfaces again and again and again, which hadn't even occurred to me, probably should have. Why is the Crystal Palace exhibition so important in getting this new thing over? Well, it's a new kind of venue, for one thing, and it's it was a, a hugely well-attended extravaganza, and its principal or platform, basically, was to unite the arts and the industries. And within that, the commercial products that could emerge out of both realms. And that's sort of the new idea of the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian era. And since the stereoscope, as a child of that moment, really does straddle those arenas of artistic and educational, useful and entertaining. So it's kind of the, the perfect storm if you will, and could be presented as a brand new invention. There are a lot of, it was an era of competition between France and England, especially, and the stereoscope has a foot in both countries. Both could both could claim aspects of it, even that early. World's Fairs, though, another thing that the Crystal Palace did was kick off this series of World's Fairs, which, as you know, went all the way into 20th century and may still be going on. I'm not 100%. Yeah, they continue today. (laughs) 
because there are other good uh, 3D moments with uh, subsequent World's Fairs. In, in 1939, for instance, the New York World's Fair was another key point on the 3D timeline because the Viewmaster was presented there for the first time and, and polarized 3D cinema was also screened at the 1939 World's Fair. So that was another another landmark that I think, again, benefited from the, the World's Fair rubric of novelty, industry, entertainment, culture, all of that coming together into these certain kinds of products. When does photography adapt or come into the picture and what impact does it have? Through the 1840s, different systems and conventions are being worked out for how to make a stereoscopic pair of photographs or a stereograph. And once that's in place, it can be a matter of publishing and the mass circulation becomes possible. That standard stereographic format of two side-by-side square-ish uh, photographs mounted to a cardboard card that's about four by seven inches, that's in place already by 1850 for sure. And once that's in place, the accompanying stereoscopic viewers, suitable cameras, and all the materials required to produce those cards in the thousands are in place. So it really becomes what I think of as one of the first forms of mass visual culture. I don't think there are any glass stereographs in your show, but I think in some places, maybe not all places, stereographs, photographic stereographs start as glass. Why? And what happens when glass gives way to cardboard? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there are a few interesting things to say as background. First of all, I, I think that the origin of the stereograph on glass in part relates to the already the existence of magic lantern slides. So there are modes of production already in place for lantern slides, painted, drawn, and later, of course, photographic. They're kind of interrelated in terms of production. But for the 3D experience in particular, it is a popular and beautiful support for stereographs from the 1840s for several decades through through to the end of the century, really. And the backlighting and the, the illumination from behind of a photographic positive on glass is really amazing. Scintillating detail, the richness of that albumin emulsion on the glass is is really remarkable. The only examples we do have in the show are of the Warren Delarue photographs, stereo photographs of the moon. We have side-by-side -side glass version and paper. So it's kind of an interesting opportunity to see the differences. They're the same, same source material produced on different supports and where you have the glass ones set up so that you can illuminate them and see the backlighting. 19th century photography scholars have long noted how photography wasn't just used by scientists, but was really useful to science. You also note here that stereography was useful to science, or was it illustrative and thus kind of nice, or was it actually useful to science? That's an interesting question. It's not always easy to tell because declarations of utility are not always the same as actual utility. I've learned to kind of question 
that sort of thing because I have to admit that when I was in my younger days as a, as a student and researching this material for my dissertation years ago, I was eager to find all kinds of testimonials for the benefits and the utility and the various applications of stereoscopy. And my graduate advisor helpfully reminded me that a lot of what I was looking at was actually advertisement. <laughs> and, and so it's hard to know exactly how and whether all of those claims were really true. However, one of the bodies of work I included in the exhibition allows us to speculate, I think, in interesting ways. And I'm leaping a bit forward into the 20th century here with the Frank and Lillian Gilbreth time and motion studies, how their documentation of efficient movement in three dimensions, whether it's a man swinging a golf club or a woman typing or other kinds of functions which were repetitive and which they believed could be made ever more efficient. You had to understand the inefficient motion before you could design a more efficient one. So they used stereoscopic still photography and film to record different actions. And they believed that the stereoscopic versions were necessary for instruction because they would be more clear, um, more, more comprehensive, but also more memorable for the person who saw them in 3D. It is hard to know how true that was, but that was the conviction behind the use of stereoscopy to lend some kind of scientific and documentary validity to the whole enterprise. Before we leave the 19th century, two, two more things. One, who was Oliver Wendell Holmes and how is he important as both a critic and as an, I don't know what the right word is, sort of inventor, definite designer? He, well, he's really, I guess I call him an essayist. He was involved with Atlantic Monthly Magazine and published a lot of his great articles there. He wrote a handful of articles about stereoscopy, was an early collector and enthusiast and a kind of a great stylist as a writer too, because he's so often quoted in texts, not just about stereoscopy, but about 19th century visual culture in general, because he talks about, first of all, the kind of, he has a very kind of active description of what it's like to look at a stereograph. So if you're looking at a stereograph of a landscape, he writes that you can feel the tree branches scratching your eyes and you he, he uses this very active language about how you're walking through the scene and you feel like you're really there. And it's just beautifully phrased. And he also was very attentive to the uh, mass circulation of these images. He talked about stereographs as currency. And in, and in fact, the size of a stereograph is pretty much the same as the size of American currency at that time. Paper money was brand new. And so was, yeah, so was the stereography. So he drew that parallel very explicitly, both, both the kind of physical material paper parallel, but also that sense of, of, of image, an image economy, if you will. 
and the ability of images to, in fact, replace the real thing the way currency replaced real gold. So there's some really interesting conceptual leaps that he already makes and that someone like Walter Benjamin is thinking about decades later and that we're still grappling with today. So he puts in place a lot of interesting language and concepts. Then, as you noted, he also was a a tinkerer himself and invented with an optician the kind of stereoscope, handheld stereoscope that is most familiar to us today, that that sort of curved hood that fits over the eyes and the card on a kind of a rod um, that's uh, adjustable for focus. It's a simple, simple device and um, one that became really the most popular domestic model of stereoscope. There's probably one other thing about Holmes that's worth mentioning in those essays he's writing for The Atlantic about about this new photography, about stereographs. He's also writing about the Civil War. So you have this incredible collision of the new technology, the new medium, the new medium showing the West to the East for the first time, and the war. And it all comes together, and there's this moment of both horror and popularization that that helps make the thing that helps really popularize the thing in, in, in the East. Yes, that's so true. And you're, you make also the excellent point that there's this, the war gives Holmes and many others, this imperative to record this history as it's happening and ha- and create an archive for the future, the kind of archive we wish we had of the past, the pre-photographic past. There's that urgency in play with Holmes and his contemporaries as well. I think one of the, the other 19th century thing about which I wanted to ask is that I think one of the surprises of the show to visitors will be how relatively few 19th century stereographs are there because this is a show that is about three dimensions creating work writ large across several centuries. Was there a point in your research, you know, maybe very early on, that you thought you were mostly looking at 19th century stereographic photography and then that you just kind of kept going and going into the present? Or was it always for you, you know, a 160-year show or a 160-year research project? Yes, it's true that uh, the 19th century represents only a portion of this exhibition. It was, however, the entirety of my initial research. My dissertation focused on um, stereoscopy up to 1870. So that's where I had the most background in that initial invention and first peak of popularity. However, I I knew that alone was not the most viable exhibition for a museum like LACMA. The scale is small. The Optics um, with apparatuses and so on could be a bit challenging. And I also didn't want it to be just be a time capsule of the Victorian era as, as much as I would like to have access to one of those. And being in Los Angeles, so all of that research I conducted years ago in other places. And being in Los Angeles, and I arrived here in 2008, as there was another 3D peak happening in Hollywood. And I realized this was the time and the place to think about that whole survey, that whole scope, and 
Yes, that's challenging in a different way than just focusing on the 19th century, but it did also allow me to include work of different scale, different conceptual underpinning, using other technologies beyond just stereoscopic pairs, but to also dip into, albeit not comprehensively, these other realms of holography, lenticular, cinema, etc. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to stick to how artists engaged with 3D in the 20th and now 21st centuries. But the show includes film and and just lots of other stuff. But in terms of how our conversation will start the 20th century, let's start with Man Ray and Duchamp, which, you know, probably sounds weird. Why were they interested in the thing and how did they engage with it? Well, Duchamp had a lifelong interest in optics, also in mathematics, and ultimately in the fourth dimension, although that's not so much my focus. I'm, uh, there, are, there are scholars who believe that his interest in the third dimension was as a jumping off point to the fourth dimension and that the challenge of representing the fourth dimension. And, and that, I think, is a compelling argument, of course, for, for my purposes. I only wanted to show the, the third dimension. And he had different strategies and tools for doing that. He was very familiar with stereoscopic pairs. At For him, that was there's some nostalgia attached to that because that was of a that was a prior generation's version of 3D. He also had a library of books that included books on mathematics, one of which is anaglyphic. Um, that was from 1912. So he was familiar with the with the red blue anaglyph that many of us recognize as 3D and was intrigued with that and was working on various kinds of 3D representation all the way into the 1960s to his to the time of his death. He first makes his roto reliefs in 1935. He remakes them in 65 and Man Ray photographed them in stereograph. Yes, since you mentioned the roto reliefs, that is key because that's an illusion of depth that's not made with a stereo pair, but through motion. It's a, a kinetic version. And he made a, a couple of other precision optics devices that had rotating elements and Man Ray photographed one of those. So obviously in the in the stereo photograph, they're not in motion. It's a device that creates 3D effect by motion, but then is rendered in still in a stereo, stereographic pair. It's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a complex interconnection, admittedly. It's the reflexivity the early 20th century loved. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. And I think they were completely aware of that. And what I also liked is that it's two artists working together on this kind of impossible conundrum and not entirely succeeding. They also film made a film of the rotary glass plates, which was which they destroyed in the processing. You know, it never was a was viable to screen. So there were there was a lot of trial and error, let's say, involved in this. And that I think does run through the 
history of 3D in a way that there's a research aspect to it and experimentation and that there are kind of principles that you can read about, but once you're trying to apply them, you have to still make adjustments for the vagaries of your materials or the human visual system and 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 the kind of physiology, how to match up a kind of pure theory with, with um, the human brain. There are Sometimes uh, adjustments have to be made for user error, let's say. You mentioned earlier that 3D was a big deal at the New York World's Fair of 1939 in kind of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Big business, whether it's film or whomever else, gets interested in 3D. And from about 1950 on, we have a lot of artists who are engaging with, with 3D and its and how it works. And before we get to those artists... Is it because big business and film got into 3D in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that artists in the 50s, 60s, and 70s ended up there? Is it that straight and likely a line? In part, that's one of the lines, but also kind of to start that line a little bit earlier, wartime research was also crucial that in the refinement of polarization, for one thing, and even something that we think of as a toy like the Viewmaster was used for military training. The depth effect was used for training reels that helped people learn to recognize certain aircraft or ships or to understand topography in a different way. So as as with many technologies that reach the public and, and uh, popular sphere, they had their origins in military-funded research. So that's that's definitely part of the 30s and 40s, as you mentioned. Another key point on that timeline, I think, is the extended moment of art and technology collaborations in the late 60s and early 70s at LACMA and Bell Labs and elsewhere. And those connections and those gatherings of people spurred several of the artistic projects that appear in my show and and appeared elsewhere. Artists like Andy Warhol, Bruce Nauman, in my show... Alphonse Schilling is a really interesting artist who's not very well known in the United States, but one of these really polymathic types who spent time in the United States, New York in um, the late 1960s, was involved with research at Bell Labs involving perception and and 3D imaging, worked alongside filmmaker and video artist Woody Vazulka at that time, and um, was also part of the downtown performance art scene. So these different contexts, these collaborative contexts brought artists together with the engineers who would, in many cases, be essential to realizing their 3D projects. Well, let's talk about some of those post-war artists and their engagements with the thing. Oscar Fischinger's Triangular Planes is something I'd never seen before until it was in the catalog. What is this painting or paintings and what is he doing? Well, he was also interested at that same time in the uh, early 1950s in making a 3D film, a 3D animated film, which if you know his film work more generally, you could imagine, you know, very kind of orchestrated, rhythmic lines, colors, etc. He had he had a goal of making a 3D film and made a few seconds of it as a pitch piece, so to speak, and didn't get the funding for it. Um, this was right before, you know, the features emerged and became popular. So he didn't get the funding for a 3D 
animated abstract film in 1950. Surprise. So he, uh, he decided to apply those same principles to a series of paintings. And those, the paintings, uh, it's, a, it's a small series, I think in total, maybe it was four or five of them. And they were exhibited in San Francisco at SFMOMA at that time with his instructions for viewing them. And they are really remarkable, both in their precision and their handmadeness. When you get a chance to see it, the kind of physicality of the paint on the canvas and the drawnness of it is is really amazing. And I think he just was one of those people who, I, I guess, I compare him to a Maholi Naj who could imagine an object and then portray it in this completely intuitive but also precise way. Depending on how you count it, the first work in the catalog is by somebody artists probably wouldn't expect, and that's Andy Warhol. There are two, at least, Warhols in in the catalog. The first one is of daisies. The next one is of the Statue of Liberty. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what is Warhol's interest and how does he explore it in these two pieces? Yeah, they're, uh, they, they come out of two different, I think, strains of thinking for him. The, the daisies, which I should mention will be on view later in the exhibition when they swap in to a second rotation. They're not on view in the opening version, but they come out of the art and technology project that LACMA mounted in um, 1968 to 1971. So interestingly, Warhol's initial proposals for that for that project involved holography, but he ended up using lenticular technology instead. And the daisies were the backdrop for a much bigger sculptural installation called the Rain Machine, which had water, I mean, as it just as it sounds, it was rigged so that a water a waterfall would be placed right before the daisies. So another kind of filter between the eye and the lenticular object. And I think there, of course, as a, as a pop artist, he was voraciously interested in pop culture. By then, lenticular could be found in cheap postcards and promotional items and so on. So he's taking... Lots of comic books. Yes. And keychains and, you know, little giveaways and stuff. So I think he's kind of adopting that, um, enlarging the scale somewhat, as he did with his wallpapers and, and so on, repetition and, um, and enlargement. The Statue of Liberty is from a small, a handful of, I think, five or six optical paintings, as they became known, which he did in the comic book anaglyph, red-blue method. A really nice extension of his screen print techniques, which he often would offset anyway, just to show the manual nature of that or the kind of revel in the imperfection of a screen print that had its different screens not in perfect alignment. Well, that's kind of what you do with an anaglyph in a certain way. So he did a couple of Statues of Liberty that way, a disaster, a car crash, and a couple of smaller portraits. Regrettably, I will admit to you that's one of the heartbreaks of the show that I couldn't secure one of those for, for I couldn't secure a Statue of Liberty for inclusion in the show, but I'm, I'm glad it's in the catalog anyway. Maybe the two artists of the post-Vietnam era who are in the show and surprise me least are Bruce Nauman. It makes sense that he would be interested in, in the area. And, and Sigmar Polka. What does Nauman do and what does Polka do? 
Nauman was really the first artist to take up holography in the contemporary art space and use the very early form of it that requires the work to be seen under laser light. So it's a bit difficult to install, but in a way that makes this sort of ghostly appearance of the figure all the more magical. They are self-portraits and show him contorting his face or his body in different ways. Uh, he also made a really well-known photolithographic series of the face images um, that's called Studies for Holograms. So in a way, that, that, that 2D version of the project has become better known than the, than the 3D one. But this was also an initiative tied in with the art and technology program. It was realized outside of it, but originally proposed for it. So part of that kind of that moment when artists could be matched up with the technicians who could produce the final outcome. With Polka, and of course the paintings I was looking at come much, much later in the 21st century, He's kind of taking the opposite approach, in fact. So he's not approaching it in a high-tech way. And the, the technology he's riffing off of is lenticular, where you have that acrylic line screen, you know, that familiar ridged overlay that you might find on, on a Cracker Jack's prize. <laughs> um, and that, that that's actually a series of lenses. And it's those ridges that are directing the multiple images to your eyes and giving you the illusion of three dimensions. Polka's thinking about that technology, but doing a handmade version of it. So he makes paintings, whether figurative or abstract, and, and applies an acrylic overlay and really combs through it to create that ridged surface. So these are not lenses as such. They emulate those lenses. And I think it's sort of his way of, of noting, among other things, that, that this is a, a technology that has been mainly applied to pop art ephemera over, over many decades. And he is also really interested in optics and illusions. So in the figurative lens paintings, like the one in the exhibition, he depicts magicians, conjurers, alchemists, historical figures of various sorts who also engaged in thinking and, and uh, demonstrations about perception and vision. And of course, Polka is interested in pharmaceuticals and acid. Well, there's that too, altered perception. But I'm glad you brought that up because that <laughs> it's so important to mention that when we're talking about the 60s and 70s and beyond, that part of that exploration of perception, it was, it was not only about externalizing it, but internalizing it as well. We've been talking about a lot of dudes. In fact, I think we've been talking entirely about dudes. The show is, I mean, there are a lot of dudes in the show. But some of the most interesting work is is from Lydia Clark. She totally fits in the show. I'm not sure I can describe it, but I think you can. <laughs> yes, that it's funny, that piece we unpacked it earlier this week and installed it. And um, it's called Goggles. or Dialogue Goggles. Dialogue, yes. And what we're showing is, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, because what we're showing, and it's labeled as such, is an exhibition copy. 
Therefore, we could very carefully pick it up and use it and see how it works. Um, unfortunately, visitors won't be able to. We have it in a vitrine. But you can get an idea even in the vitrine. So we put these things on is what I'm saying. And we figured out how they actually work. And both simple and magical. I have a case to make of why it fits into 3D. And what, but what happens is you're facing each other, each wearing basically a pair of swim goggles. And between you are two circles which are mirrored on both sides so what if i'm looking at you i'm seeing my own eyes in the mirror but your face around them so it's a it's a very kind of you know mechanical way of superimposing your eyes on someone else's face and vice versa so you would be seeing your own eyes with the rest of my face around it and it sounds simple or even simplistic, but it is really fascinating and weird and interesting. I know today we have a lot of different ways of doing that kind of thing digitally, but something about the physicality of this is really quite amazing. And that is not necessarily about binocular vision, but it is definitely about dismantling vision or separating vision into different components and about synthesizing two different points of view. That's what I think is pretty amazing about that piece and her work of that period. I want to close with the two things that close the show in the book, which are different. The show closes with a uh, an enormous Michael Snow. No one could make more sense for this show than Michael Snow. Michael Snow made more work and better work than anybody in the late 20th and early 21st centuries about how we see and how we fool the eye and how we play with perception. What is the Michael Snow that you have? Yes, the, the, the challenge was which Michael Snow, as you it was. Uh, I, I spent a long time pondering that, and then it, I decided to just go for broke with really the largest, most ambitious, or, you know, in, in certain ways, piece that he did um, incorporating holography among his many other perception challenging and commenting works, several of them incorporate holography because the Canadian government was quite generous with their funding of such projects um, during this time period, late 70s and into the 80s. So fortunately, he had support to really go deep, if you will, with this technology and not just as a one-off. So he became very uh, adept and experienced and ambitious with it. So another aspect of his work, which I know you're familiar with, is he's also great with language and wordplay, etc. And this piece is called Redifice. And that's a made up word, obviously, but it incorporates elements that help me describe the piece because it's red and it's basically an edifice in that it it mimics, it's a freestanding wall, eight feet long and six feet high or something like that. And on each side, you see a grid, kind of like a if you imagine a drawing of a skyscraper, you have a grid of windows. And in this grid, some of them are sculptural tableaus, actual three-dimensional objects, and some of them are holograms. And so he's playing with that distinction of dimensionality, whether literal or represented. And the work also includes an artist statement, which riffs even further than I did on the implications of redness, of building, of space, of voyeurism, illusion. And the viewer, he asks 
as as you know from his work, he is always aware of the viewer and activating the viewer and asking them to position themselves in a certain way vis-a-vis the work. So with this one, you'll be peering into these different niches, trying to figure out the story, uh, the little narrative that's involved. And in so doing, you become very aware of yourself as a voyeur looking into someone's window. And that, in addition to just the kind of technological feat of building, lighting, creating a a wall within a gallery, it's been a real thrill to learn more about this piece and to think about what it's going to mean to bring it here. It's never been seen outside of Canada, and there probably only three times, I'm going to say, when it debuted and then one or two more times at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, which owns it. So it's it's quite a production, and I think it'll be a highlight of the show. The reference to looking in windows, of course, refers probably to Snow's own great wavelength. The The color of this thing is is Snow's trademark red, which is kind of the color with which he begins or at least most extends his his color photographic practice. Um, and of course, you mentioned the grid. I mean, he's just messing with us with the grid. I mean, the grid is, you know, he's, he's acknowledging the grid. He's giving us a grid and then he's subverting the grid. And the grid and also the front and back, you know, the recto verso, because so much of it involves that, you know, going around to the other side. And as another little bit of a glimpse in process, our initial design for this work involved kind of embedding it within an, uh, an existing wall framing it out so that you would see one side built in and then walk around and see the other. Well, when I showed him that diagram, he said that's not how he wanted it to be. He, he wanted you to know from the, to know right away that there was another side, not discover it after encountering other artworks and Fortunately, I had, we had that exchange when it was still possible to make an adjustment. And of course, he was right because, I mean, for for the basic reason of it's his decision to make, but also he was right curatorially, in fact, because when we made an adjustment and put the work at an angle through that same gap in the wall, it's going to activate the space in an entirely different way. I was, of course, thinking way too, way too much of a grid. And he encouraged me to disrupt that. And I was really glad for that push in the right direction. The catalog ends kind of in two ways. The last page of the catalog includes, you know, right above the copyright information and the Library of Congress data, an Ed Ruscheh. What is the Ed Ruscheh and why is it perfect for that page? Well, it's a great little holographic series that takes movie tail pieces? Is that what you call those? Anyway, we all know what it is, if not the word for it, but it's when the film ends and you have the end telling you that's where you are. And of course, it's the end of the book too, the way we use it in the design. And it's pretty near the end of the show, not not totally. And Ruscha, of course, loves to transpose favorite motifs across different media. And as a print curator, I've um, seen him do this amazing work in so many different um, graphic techniques. He also explored holography. There was, I want to say, an an initiative called the C Project in the 90s, which sought to emulate the great print workshops such as Gemini in facilitating holographic editions with artists and 
putting together technicians with artists who might be interested in holography. Um, Roche was one of these. This was a series he did, a small small edition of. Some of the works made initially with that project have since been re-editioned in more stable materials. So we're showing a new, a relatively recent iteration of a series that was made a few years earlier. So that's the last page of the catalog text. The very last pages of the catalog are the end papers. And you did something cool with the end papers. The end papers are a very, at first glance, light and joyful pattern of geometric shapes, pink and blue. I think those are the Pantone colors of the year, or they were last year's, or something <laughs> like that. So it's this very pleasing combinations of pinks and blues, which do hint at, and indeed are, the anaglyph 3D color palette. This is an artist, Peggy Weil, who's been involved with LACMA as an advisor to our art and technology program of the 21st century. I was talking with her about that program and my exhibition, and she said, oh, I did some 3D projects in the 70s, a line which I've heard several times and always thrills me always thrills me because something good is going to come. And in her case, certainly did. She had made, she had made in the 1970s, a 3D wallpaper, which then she did using um, screen prints and pieces of paper, which would have to be registered and knit together. So we had a, a, a fun time looking at those with our 3D glasses. And then I had this wall at my disposal, which is difficult for a lot of other kinds of art because it's opposite some glass bricks. And well, it's not really meant for the installation of artworks, but I never want to leave a wall unattended. And I had the idea that Peggy might be willing to redraw her 3D wallpaper digitally and and make a real wallpaper out of it again. And she did. And it's amazing. And I've had a lot of since we installed it early, we've been able to test it out on a lot of different people, and it's been getting a great response. And I think there are some people who are intrigued with the possibility of they're imagining it in their kind of in their children's bedrooms. And that makes a certain amount of sense chromatically, but once you see it in, in 3D, I won't spoil it entirely, but the effect in 3D is not quite so playful as the, as the effect in 2D. It changes its mood, let's say. Well, the show's not traveling from LACMA, but the catalog, you know, obviously does. And uh, and it's an absolute doozy. Britt Salveson, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristobal, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details and a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. Known for his collaborations with pop icons and fashion house Louis Vuitton and for vibrant anime-inspired characters, Japanese artist Takashi Murakami has blurred the boundaries throughout his career between high and low culture, ancient and modern, east and west. 
In a new exhibition organized by the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth offers a major retrospective of his paintings, featuring 50 works that span three decades of his career, from the artist's earliest mature works to his recent monumentally scaled paintings. The exhibition, titled Takashi Murakami, The Octopus Eats Its Own Leg, shows how Murakami's art is rooted in traditions of Japanese painting and folklore, and highlights the artist's careful attention to crafted materials. Takashi Murakami, The Octopus Eats Its Own Leg, on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through September 16th. Learn more at themodern.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents A Tradition of Revolution, on view through August 19th. The exhibition features more than 75 works from the Nasher's collection, ranging from the beginnings of modernism to the experiments of the present day. You can see classic works by Edgar Degas, Alexander Calder, Henri Matisse, and Pablo Picasso, as well as more recent works by the likes of Louise Bourgeois, Philida Barlow, and Alex Israel. More at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Princeton art historian Bridget Alstorff, who contributed an essay to the catalog for the exhibition Women Artists in Paris, 1850-1900, which is now at the Clark Art Institute in Massachusetts. The catalog was published by Yale University Press and the American Federation of Arts. Amazon offers it for $43. Of course, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Bridget Alstorff, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Your essay starts with a passage written by the French writers, novelists, brothers, Edmund and Jules de Goncourt. And it's a passage that establishes as clearly as humanly possible how women who made art were thought of in mid-19th century Paris. What is that sentence? And then how did the Goncourt make it even worse from there? <laughs> <laughs> well, the sentence is genius is male. This was a pretty widespread view at the time. In fact, I would, I would argue it's, it's still a reasonably widespread view, but, but more blatantly in the 19th century. And the, the Goncourt brothers, uh, who were, they were writers, they were, they were novelists, and historians, and they were also very active socialites. They, socialites. Uh, they write this in their journal, and their their journal is one of the most amazing chronicles we have of Parisian artistic society in the the 19th century. And it's just chock full of gender anxiety. It's it's filled with these snide and often vicious remarks, undercutting other artists and writers' virility. This was kind of their go-to move to slam an artist that they wanted to, to take down, who they felt competitive with. For example, after they meet Emile Zola, a novelist whose career had, had really taken off by this time, they describe him in their journal as uh, puny, anemic, hypersensitive, and they attribute these qualities to an unfortunate mix in his character of masculine and feminine traits. So they're, they're feminizing him as a way to take him down. And the more, the more successful the artist or the writer was, the more vicious the Goncourt brothers could be. So when they meet the most renowned, famous female artist of their time, an artist by the name of Rosa Bonheur, she had achieved tremendous success for an artist of any gender, working in any medium. And her international renown was all the more remarkable because of her gender. When they meet her, their, their gender anxiety and their, their misogyny is fully unleashed. And they brutally ridicule her appearance. They make fun of her manners and her behavior for all their perceived masculinity. And they viciously mock her, her partner, who was a woman. 
And this is all deeply related to their pronouncement elsewhere in the journal that genius is male. So any woman artist or writer who achieves greatness had to have been in the Goncourt's estimation at least partly male. And they mean this quite literally. They actually at one point in the journal imagine the autopsies of two very accomplished and renowned French female writers, Madame de Stal and Georges Sand. They imagine that the autopsy of these women would have shown that they were actually hermaphrodites. So this, this is just wildly imaginative misogyny here. And I think this is, this is a Goncourt's special talent, chroniclers of Parisian artistic society, and that their, their social cruelty is creative enough to be at least really entertaining. It's just, it's just full of mean-spirited flair. So as, as distasteful as it can be to read, it's very worth reading uh, for that alone. But it also says a lot about the way women in general and women artists specifically were perceived in this milieu of the Parisian art world. One way artists uh, established who their peers and colleagues and allied painters were in 19th century France was the group portrait. Is there a group portrait in which we see Rosa Bonheur or any women painters? There are a very few. There's one portrait, group portrait of major artists of the 19th century by a painter by the name of Nices de Kaiser that includes Rosa Bonheur. It's, it's not in the exhibition, but it's, you know, and it's not a painting that people know very much now. Um, but she was included in that because she was so famous, so renowned. But that's an exception. Uh, in general, group portraits of artists in the 19th century do not include women. And when women do paint their own artistic milieu, they tend not to take that form of the formal group portrait. The closest approximation we might have of a group portrait of women depicted as artists is a studio scene of uh, women in a private studio school, the Académie Julien, which was one of the main places that women artists could train in 19th century Paris. And uh, a rush by the name of Marie Bashkertseff, uh, she uh, was one of the leading artists studying at this school, the Académie Julien, and she painted a studio scene of, with herself and many of her colleagues, friends, and rivals in the act of painting a model a young adolescent boy actually standing nude in front of him, of them with a strategically placed loincloth. So it's a picture that, that includes many portraits. So the, the artists depicted are specific people. They're identifiable. They were the women who she actually was painting alongside day after day. And it raises one of the more interesting problems that or obstacles that women artists faced in this period was that it was seen to be inappropriate for them to have access to the nude, which was one of the main one of the main things that they needed to study directly in the flesh in order to learn anatomy, in order to learn how to paint figure paintings. And I think it's really interesting that in that painting, Bashkratsev, she does show that at least in the private studio schools like the Académie Julien, not the official French Academy of Fine Arts, where women were not allowed to study at all uh, until 1897. But in these private schools where they were allowed to study, they did, in certain instances, have access to nude models, male and female. But in the, in the painting that she, uh, where she presents this scene of study and diligent work to the public, she makes that male model, an, an adolescent boy, to take some of the, 
to take some of the impropriety out of it, just so that no one might think that these women are getting even a little bit hot and bothered by the model in front of them. So I think that's really indicative of the, the tensions surrounding this kind of training. But that kind of, that's one of the group portraits that we, we do find as well is quite rare. It's much more of a male genre, the group portrait of artists. Women tend to do, they paint each other, they paint portraits of each other. Sometimes there are pictures of two or three women artists together, but a real kind of formal group, they don't, they don't do it. One of the masters of the artist group portrait is Henri Fantin Latour. He painted five such group portraits. None include women. Why is that all the more notable? It's notable because Fontaine Latour was actually married to a woman artist and quite an accomplished one at that. So the fact that he never thought to include her, we have quite a voluminous correspondence from Fontaine Latour, and it seems to have never so much as crossed his crossed his mind to have included her in one of these one of these paintings and you know there are there are various reasons why this might be we can only uh, speculate but it's not a question of Fontaine not wanting to paint her at all uh, because he did paint her several times her name was Victoria Dubourg she was an accomplished artist especially in the genre of still life they met while painting the same uh, copying the same Correggio painting in the Louvre. And they were both excellent technicians as painters. So they had quite a comparable artistic style, uh, the two of them. So they, they saw eye to eye aesthetically, philosophically, stylistically. And Fontaine does, does paint her. He paints her as a subject and they also paint alongside her day in, day out. They shared a studio in their home. But when he does paint her, he paints her not as an artist, not holding paintbrush in hand, not in the act of drawing, not in the Louvre, but he paints her sitting in a chair, uh, reading. There's one instance where he paints her with her family as a, as a daughter and as a, a wife, but he never paints her as an artist. So Fontaine does paint other women as artists, but he only paints them in the role of the student. So he, in his career, he does take on a couple of students and he paints them in the act of painting, holding a palette, sitting in front of a blank canvas. But he never does that with his wife. Uh, and I think that that suggests that he's comfortable painting women artists in that role, that submissive role of student, where that student-teacher relationship establishes his, his distance and his superiority over them, perhaps. But there was something uncomfortable for him about including her in his uh, artist groups. And this is something that I thought about a lot in working on these, these pictures of artist groups. They're groups that, Fontaine's groups are really overbearingly masculine when you look at them. They're life-size pictures of male artists wearing suits, black suits. They're very sober in their color palette and in their emotional affect, it's clear that the, this ideal of collectivity and solidarity that they represent depended on the exclusion of women. Because to include a woman in a group portrait of artists at a time and in a place where women were far from equal would disrupt that egalitarian ideal 
that the group portrait is based on. And so this made it very complicated for Fontaine to include his wife in such a group because he could not introduce her as a woman in this group of men without creating a problem of hierarchy, not to mention just the visual difference of a woman and her dress and appearance in this very uniform composition of men in suits. So I think, I think that that's a specific example that's indicative of a larger problem. I keep bringing up paintings by men. I want to establish kind of the thing before getting to an artist who subverts societal, societal roles most fabulously. The last example I want to bring up before moving on is kind of related to what you were saying about how it was okay for men to paint women painters as long as they were students or somehow secondary. And the best example, or maybe the most famous example, is Manet's portrait-ish of a woman painting, and that woman is Ava Gonzalez. First, is Manet, it's just a bizarre painting. It's at the National Gallery in London. First, is the title Mademoiselle E.G. Manet's? Yes, I believe so. I mean, it was common to to obfuscate the, the woman's name when it's displayed in public as a kind of note of modesty and propriety to protect the woman's identity. Even though she's a painter who exhibits. And so the painting is almost inexplicable and confused in the sense that he's got Gonzalez in, uh, in kind of a high fashion evening style dress, but sitting at an easel painting her arms don't look like arms. <laughs> so one, is he mocking her? What is he doing here? I don't think he's mocking her. I think I would I think that's going a little too far, but I do think that there was a real conflict even for artists like Manet who was actually one of the artists in 19th century Paris and in my opinion who was most able to view the world through a woman's eyes and to really kind of understand the female experience in at least in his upper bourgeois circle. So I don't think that he's mocking her, but I think that even for him, there was quite a conflict between thinking about the two, thinking the two identities of woman and artist together and how to picture that visually in a painting. Because a woman, especially in the tradition of society portraiture, had to look beautiful. She was usually decked out in all kinds of finery and the painting is about showing her silks and satins and her coiffure and her just perfect put together image. But to show a woman who's also an artist in the act of painting, that, that beauty and that, that whole getup of the, the toilette just doesn't make sense with an artist sitting in an easel painting. So it, it, it ultimately looks rather absurd. I mean, who would sit and paint in a white dress like that? So I don't think that it's, it's mocking her, but I do think that it's very confused. And it's hard to know with Manet. It's always hard to know, Manet, how much of that conflict and confusion is, is intentional or how much it's somewhat unwitting. But it's certainly a strange painting and one that feminists, feminist art historians have spent a lot of time thinking about. So that brings us to Rosa Bonheur, who may have been, as we discussed earlier, the most prominent woman artist in Paris in the mid-1850s and and was one of the most prominent artists, regardless of gender. And there are, uh, in your essay, a couple of examples of her that demonstrate her acute understanding of how male artists painted women 
and and on how Bonor insists on what might be called alphahood. So the first one is a, a, a painting, a, a portrait made of her by a, a well-known society portraitist of the time na- named Edouard uh, de Boeuf. What is this painting, and how does how does Bonhoeffer take charge? So this is a painting that was commissioned by Rosa Bonheur, British dealer, as a kind of promotional image for her. Bonheur, by 1857, when this painting was made, was already very successful commanding very large sums from her for her work she had been she had taken her work to be shown at Buckingham Palace to Queen Victoria so very very successful internationally renowned and her dealer and Bonheur as well were very savvy about marketing her image and portraits like these were part of that but it was a very difficult experience for Bonner. She hated posing. She liked to be on the other side of the easel. She liked to be painting. She also really hated wearing a dress. She actually had an official permit from the Paris police to dress like a man so that she could go out in the city and also to the, the horse races and the slaughterhouses. Uh, her, her favorite subject was animals. And she could do that in men's clothes and pants and not uh, worry about uh, restrictions against that. So she, it's amazing you actually had to have an official permit to go out in pants, but she had one of those. So to put on a dress and pose for a painting was a special kind of torture for her. She really hated being put on display. And Dubuff, who was, as any good society portraitist must be, very sensitive to the psychology and emotional affect of the person standing in front of him that he's painting, he, he realizes quickly that these sessions were torture for her. Uh, He senses her restlessness and knows that this isn't going well. So he invites her to collaborate with him on the portrait. Can Can I interrupt for just a second? How do we know that the collaboration was his idea? Well, there's... There is a very detailed chronicle of the event in uh, Bonner's biography. So this is according to her account of the event after the fact. So this is how she described it to her biographers later on. So it's possible that that's somewhat fabricated, but one would think that if it was her idea, she would have said so because she was quite a independent uh, quite an independent woman. And, and just to be clear, this was her autobiography, you know, her memoirs. So this isn't the take of a biographer. Well, it's it's a it's in a sense an autobiography. I mean, in the sense that she had a very heavy hand in controlling it, but she did not write it herself. But she controlled it as far as possible when one is not writing it herself. So he he supposedly invited her to collaborate on the portrait. She she gets up, walks around to the other side of the easel, and begins to paint a bull next to her image. Again, she was she's she was an animalier, which is a, a painter specializing in animals. So she loved to paint uh, all kinds of animals. In fact, she once said, as far as men go, I only like the bulls that I paint, <laughs> making very clear her allegiance. She was she was a lesbian. She had a female partner all her life. That she she loved animals and she she paints a bull next to her next to her image putting the bull's head under her, her free hand, her hand that's actually holding a paintbrush. And so what you end up with is a portrait of, uh, by Dubuff of Bonheur, standing next to a portrait of a bull by the hand of Bonheur herself. So it becomes a double portrait painted by two people. And in, in my opinion, the bull totally steals the show, both as a portrait and as a passage of painting. It's just an exquisite 
naturalistic rendering of a bull's head and, and torso. The, the way the fur is rendered is just so luscious and the texture is incredible. And the, the eyes just have this very affecting, sympathetic, soulful quality to them that just really turns it into a portrait of a bull more than a portrait of, of Bonheur. And it's, it's a brilliant move on, in many ways, but one of the things that I love most about it is that Bonheur is in part anticipating and preempting one of the most vicious ways that she was criticized by critics and the public throughout her career. Because despite her tremendous success, she was uh, often abused and ridiculed in the press as a woman artist. And one of the main ways that this was done was by treating her as some kind of freak or circus curiosity in the way that the Goncourt do, and by comparing her to the animals that she painted, uh, calling her a kind of wild beast and comparing her to the, the cows and horses that she depicted. So by putting this bull next to her and painting it so beautifully, she's kind of beating those critics to the punch and taking, uh, making the joke herself before they're able to make it in a, in a way that's self-deprecating but also really empowering, in my view. One of the great things about this painting is that while Bonor is, is looking off into the distance over the viewer's shoulder, past the viewer's shoulder, she paints the bull as staring down the viewer. You know, it, it's, it's really seizing control of the entire canvas while only using about, you know, 9% of it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard for Dubuff to compete with that, with that bull, especially since Bonor insists in the picture on wearing a very drab black dress that's completely uninteresting to paint. Usually when a woman was depicted in a portrait, she wears something with a shimmery texture, some color, something that's really luscious to paint, and she just puts on a very plain black dress, doesn't really do her hair. So she, she makes it relatively easy to compete with her own image, you might say. Bridget Alsdorf, thanks so much for uh, speaking with me. Pleasure speaking with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.